Welcome back, listeners. I am Francesca. You are listening to CKTZ Cortez Community Radio 89.5 on your FM dial or online at cortezradio.ca. Today on Listening In, I will be reading an audio snippet of a book called Ghost Sea, written by Ferenc Mate, published by Norton. Ghost Sea is a squash-buckling adventure on the Salish Seas, circa 1920. We will follow Duger, a modern-day gentleman pirate for the era, modern day, as he chases sacred quackyutal masks and artifacts stolen at sea, and as he tracks our fearless heroine up to the Haida Gwais. Ghost Sea is the first of a two-part adventure at sea, the second book titled Sea of Lost Dreams. Mate, a master seaman, apparently couldn't make up his mind whether he wanted to write a historical fiction or a nautical manual or an old-fashioned romance or just a pure malarkey adventure at sea. So he just very brilliantly decided to combine all of these. Being a master seaman himself, uh, if you've actually never sailed a two-masted ship before you read this book, you might just feel like you could take the helm by the end of it. I'd like to dedicate today's listening-in show to Lady Janice and Sir Gerald, our own beloved someday sailors right here on Quadra Island. They apparently have been recently interviewed by CBC, and they also appeared here on Cortez Currents. So, dear listeners, if you're up for an adventure, if you're going to sail with us, then uh, please don your southwesters because we've got to catch ourselves a ship. And tell me, wasn't that the best time? That time when we were young at sea, young and had nothing on the sea that gives nothing except hard knocks, and sometimes a chance to feel your strength, that only. Joseph Conrad. Chapter 1. The Salvage, 1920. It was the last of October, the first of the big storms. The glass had started falling before midnight, hesitant at first as if it might change its mind. But then it fell steadily and the gusts grew, and by dawn the clouds dragged over steep seas, driving a rain as cold as snow. I rode out to Bird Rock to pound in another ring, under noisy gulls that soared and dove in the updrafts on the cliff. The old Swede was on the float of his small island, hauling out the dinghies and skiffs he was repairing, flipping them over and lashing them down. Then he stood and waited in that rain, waited until I came back from pounding the ring, and as I drifted close I saw his face drawn tight, looking worriedly out at the heaving sea. You dance good out there tonight, eh? he said. I rode back into the calm of Cove, in the embrace of the mountains. A handful of fishermen's shacks floating on cedar logs shared the cove with a net loft, some seals, some sea otters, the odd black bear that came down to crab at dawn when the tide was low, and a long-neglected catch bobbing at anchor. I worked out of the cove that year as a deckhand on a tug owned by a miser named Henderson. 
salvaging logs that came loose in winter storms out of log booms being towed down the blustery, snowy sound. All my youth I dreamt of running away to sea, but this sure as hell wasn't in my dreams. At school I stared out the window after the rain, stared at the baker's roof where a pool of water rippled in the sun, and imagined it was a vast, empty ocean, the Indian or Pacific, or the Celebus or China Sea, and my mind would drift away to atoll-strewn turquoise waters or some long, sandy shore. But mostly, I dreamed of clutching the wheel of a small schooner, her sails bulging, the trade winds blowing, the wooden deck warm under my feet, and as far as my eyes could see, all around me, the sea, an endless freedom. I should have left it at dreaming, but when the sea fills your every thought awake and asleep, you can no more resist than the tides can resist the moon. So I went to sea, put in two years scraping rust off a West African coaster, a year and a half shoveling coal into the furnace of a steamer, two years standing watch on a hulk that hauled rubber from a tin shed in Brazil to brick sheds in the snow. And after all that, there I was penniless in that sunless North Pacific hole, praying for a storm. Log salvage is a profession that thrives on the loss of others. A little like grave robbing, except the law is on your side. The international law of salvage rights gives to anyone the right to grab and make his own most of what is wrecked or lost at sea. And villages from Cornwall to Sumatra have eked out a life harvesting the bounty heavens sent with the storms. And so did we. North of us, they were felling forests, dragging logs the size of houses to the shore with oxen or steam donkeys, chucking them in the sea, making them into floating booms with chained boomsticks around them. Then a tug would hook a yoke on, point south and give her full throttle, and sit there. After a while, the booms began to nudge, barely like a snail. When a storm caught them and smashed a boom or popped loose logs, we'd be there driving eye pegs in them, hauling them behind our rock, fattening up Henderson's pockets and putting a few nickels in our own. Most salvagers waited until the storm died and the seas calmed before heading out, but Henderson wanted us to get a jump. So out he sent us at the height of the gales, into riptides, the darkest nights, because that, my boys, is when the others hide under the covers, and you alone will harvest the presents from the Lord. And if by his will ye be drowned, what hell's bells? That's your destiny. Between storms, we kept busy chiseling rot out of the tug, recalking planks, keeping her afloat, and I would stare at the lonely catch weathering away. Hours I spent gazing at her from the tug or rowing around her in my skiff, getting near, sometimes scooping the heaps of rot-starting muck off the corners of her decks, sometimes checking her anchor lines for fraying. I committed her every block, every line, every bit of hardware and rigging to memory. And every time we passed her as we headed out into a storm, 
my heart would tighten against the knowledge that she would never, ever be mine. The sea is noble in her impartiality. She harbors, feeds, maims, and drowns with disregard for age or race or creed. The sole bias she can be accused of is that she won't tolerate a fool. The catch belonged to a man called Block, a fool. The year before, he'd owned whorehouses in Vancouver and Victoria full of quackyoodle squaws sent by their husbands to earn extra cash for them to throw great potlatches and impress friends and relations with their nobility. To get the freshest squaws, Block bought a double-deckered whoreboat for nine whores, ran it along the coast, plucked the ripest and sent them off to logging camps, mining camps, fish camps, homesteads, and even the odd missionary for training. The whore business flourished, so he sold it off at a fine profit, and to fit in among respectable people, those who had sold off their whatevers before, he bought himself a tugboat line and a mansion, and had half our beaching shipyards build him the best and fastest catch on the coast. She was modeled after the East Coast racers, 40 feet on the waterline, full sterned, a sheer to break your heart, bronze fastened, Port Orford cedar planked on oak frames, teak decks, spruce masts varnished like a grand piano, sails of the finest cotton. But when her inside was still as hollow as a barrel, Block went unexpectedly and irreversibly broke. He lost everything except the catch. While the lawyers wrangled, she lay anchored in our cove, sat there for a year, leaves and needles piled up in drifts, rust wept from her fittings, moss grew on her decks in the shade, mildew bloomed on her folded sails, her paint cracked, varnished, peeled, and long beards of tube kelp streamed from her rudder in the currents of the tide. She was rotting alive. I rode past her on my way back from the Swedes, checked to make sure that her anchor lines led fair over the rollers, to make sure she'd ride out the coming storm. The rain had eased, but the clouds stayed low and a hard wind whipped the sea against the tide, carving six-foot waves as steep as tombstones. A mile south of the entrance, a tug dove and bucked, fighting the waves with a three-section log boom behind it. It was dusk. We got ready to go out. We donned sou'westers, tied the cuffs tight with line, hoping to keep out at least some of the sea, laid out spikes, eyes, lengths of line, a boom chain, sharpened our knives and marlin spikes, stoked the galley stove under the coffee pot, cracked up the diesel and cast off from the boy. The wind gusted, but the sea in the cove stayed a chop. Waves could never get in. Eagle Island protected it to the south, leaving a narrow, twisting channel to the east, and an even narrower opening, just a few boats wide, next to the Swedes Island to the southwest. There was only one menace in the cove, the wind. The southeast gales would slam into the curve of cliffs and turn and funnel back out with undiminished force past the Swedes Island, right into the face of inward rushing waves. Hell for anyone trying to cross the bar. We headed out at dusk. 
The poor catch, her rein slackened, halyards slapping against the shrouds, tacked and sailed bare pulled hard against her anchors. I watched until she melted away into the rain and the fading light. The tug reared as she slammed into a wave, and her saw-toothed bow pointed at the clouds. She hung for a moment at the crest, tipped forward, and hurled herself down the back. The propeller lifted clear into the air, and its vibrations rattled the iron plates of the stove. I clung to the galley sink, and when we hit the bottom of the trough with a bone-jarring thud, the kerosene lamp went out, and green water ran a foot deep past the cabin. Then the next wave came up, and the bow lifted, and we surged out of the safety of the cove. Jordan, the skipper, laughed, loud and self-satisfied. He was still too young to get angry at life, too young to worry about death right there beside him. So he stood cheerfully at the helm in his swaying pilot house with a smile on his creaseless face. He was never perplexed by the violence of a storm, piloted the tug as if he didn't notice, and in no way felt threatened by the fact that the ocean was trying its best to send us straight to hell. He loved the sea, loved the creaky tug, loved his dumb but cheerful wife, his doughball baby daughter, his modest little house under the cedars near Dunderave, which he spent every spare moment reshaking, patching, painting, beautifying. He was blessed. I relit the lantern. We were out in deeper waters now, and the waves were longer, their faces more climbable, and the tug had an easier time of it. The clouds broke, and the moon lit in patches across the sea. Jordan eased the throttle, slid down his side window, and smiled out at the night. I went out on deck, gazed over the moon-silvered froth, searched among the chaos for incongruous lines, loose logs. We shot down the back of a wave, leaving behind the looming hulk of the Swedes' island where a window glowed reassuringly with light. Then we turned west, taking the seas abeam so that we both rolled and plunged. All we had to do was wait and not be blown ashore. The logs were coming. They had to. We knew the winds and currents. We knew our sea. The booms would be breaking up soon, and the logs, drifting north by northwest, pushed shoreward by the wind, herded by the tide, and they would come like cows home to the stable, towards the jagged bluffs of that nameless bite ahead, where the bottom suddenly shoaled and the waves rose up in rage before shattering into foam. But not before hurtling everything they had brought, driftwood, floats, nets, lost boats, halfway up the bluff to lodge in crevices and crags. Jordan had turned the tug bow into the seas, kept the throttle low, and braced himself against the cabin side with his shoulder to have one hand free for his coffee. When he spotted the first log, he eased the tug alongside, and I waded knee-deep in the breaking sea with a pike pole, then harpooned it. I clung to the pole for dear life, waiting for the tug and log to bob in harmony. In that moment, calm at the bottom of a trough, a mere blink of an eye, I yanked an ice spike and lanyard from my belt, threw myself down on my knees to hammer in the spike, yanked out the pike, fed out the line, and cleated the bitter end. By midnight, we had done well. 
We were towing our fifth log towards the safe lee of our rock. The wind still raged, but the moon peeked out and threw shreds of light on the churning sea. Rounding the rock, Jordan slowed. I hauled in the line to prevent it from slacking and fouling the prop, uncleated it and lashed it to the boom chain that linked the other logs to shore. I was just snugging the bowline when Jordan threw the cabin door open. His smile was gone. An imbecilic amazement took its place. He must have been saying something because his mouth was moving, but it was lost in the wind. He stared at something beyond me. I turned to look. I think I let out a laugh. Then the tug lurched and the line I held snapped tight, almost yanking me overboard. For a moment, the moon hid behind a cloud and the scene vanished from sight as if it had never been. Then the clouds thinned and in that eerie light I saw it had been no vision. It was the catch. She came darkly, a ghost ship through the foam with the tips of her masts white against the night, sailing under bare poles without a stitch of sail aloft. She was propelled at a curious angle by the tide and heeling slightly from the pressure of the wind, heading towards open water with her bowsprit high. Coaxed by the currents, she turned a few degrees and drifted past Bird Rock. With the wind and the waves now adding to the pressure of the tide, she gained speed and with her quarter angled slightly across the seas, she headed towards that nameless blight where crashing breakers hurled against the bluffs. For a moment, I thought, this is how it should end, better than rotting away in the cove. The moonlight sliced a crevice in the clouds and lit her path across the sea. Jordan had forgotten the wheel and the tug drifted into open waters, gave a roll and slammed us hard against the cabin. The slamming cleared my head. I had to save the catch. Jordan was shouting into the gale, but I understood nothing and could think nothing, only that the catch of all my dreams was heading down the last half mile of her life to become kindling for the cottagers to find. I lashed a line to the pike pole, cleated the bitter end, and sent the pole hurtling through the gloom. It fell laughably short. If I could get a hook on a line, if I could ease her away from the rocks into open sea. Get close, I roared at Jordan, and he roared back something that I couldn't understand. But he jammed her into reverse, and we rolled and pitched slowly towards the catch. Then I thought of just getting near in the heaving seas without smashing her to bits, to climb on a line aboard her and let out the anchor roads, to flatten the scope and let the anchors catch and dig deep into the bottom. Get close, I yelled again. What the hell are you afraid of? Lit by the compass light, Jordan's face looked fearful, his movements hesitant. We were less than a boat length from the catch. I was ready. Jordan throttled down. I raised the pole and aimed at the bowsprit where the whisker stays, head stays, and bob stays formed a web, where the pike pole was sure to tangle in something. Even an idiot couldn't miss from this close. We drifted closer. I leaned back and through, and in that very instant of release, when I had timed a fleeting lull in the lurching of the seas, when all my hopes and dreams shot like a current through me, just then, inexplicably, Jordan thrust the gear and forward and throttled hard. I lost my balance, my strength, my hope all at once, 
The pole fell stupidly into the sea. The tug roared ahead, leaving the catch in the gloom. I thought I had gone mad. I grabbed the hatchet we kept on the aft deck to hack the fouled lines and lurched towards Jordan. God only knows what I intended. The tug barreled at full speed through uncertain light. I flung open the cabin door and raised the hatchet. Jordan turned, smiling again, that old confident smile, content, content with life. I can't remember how long I stood there. Shut the door, I remember him saying, you're letting in the cold. I shut it, lowered the hatchet, but didn't put it down. The moon burst through blindingly bright. With the silver light upon them and dark shadows in between, the waves looked even more menacing than before. Jordan spoke crisply, but hurriedly, and I had trouble getting the gist. I heard, Henderson, his tug, salvage rights, all his, the catch, his. I clutched my hatchet. Then we were at the Swedes Island, and Jordan spun the wheel, turned the tug, and stopped her, but still bounced into the dock. I'm the captain, he barked. You mutinied and threatened me. I could have you arrested, but I'm merciful. You're fired. Get off my ship. I was dumbstruck. No, Jordan rolled, and give me the damn hatchet. I was too stunned to do anything but obey. I scrambled into the old Swede's dock and tripped over the skiffs. I was barely off the tug when Jordan gave full throttle, threw a wake, pulled away, then stopped. He stormed out of his cabin and, glaring at me, shouted, What the hell are you waiting for? Launch your skiff! You want your goddamn catch to be smashed on the rocks? I fumbled with the knot of the line that held my skiff down. Cut the fucker, Jordan bellowed. I glanced up. He was smiling. A wave broke over the dock and soaked me to the waist. I came to, sliced the line, and with one desperate lunge, launched the skiff and jumped in. The line, Jordan howled. Throw me the bloody line. He cleated it and gunned the tug. The skiff skipped from side to side on the tow line like a colt trying to get free. It began to rain hard. When we swept past Bird Rock, the skiff started skipping water. But Jordan kept the throttle down and the skiff went skimming, now burying her bow, now rolling from gunwale to gunwale, but surging ahead. I listened with all my concentration for the sounds I dreaded, the sounds of the catch grinding, breaking up against the bluff. Then the tug and skiff rose from a trough onto a crest, and just ahead of us through the sheets of rain, I caught sight of the catch, her bow held high. Jordan opened the throttle wide and we bore down on her. A breaker caught us and threw us sideways. We were in the shoals now and the catch drifted on. Something was wrong. Why the hell hadn't she slowed? Why hadn't her anchors caught? Then, just before the tug's steel teeth gored the catch's side, Jordan spun the tug away. He shut the throttle down, ran onto the off deck with the hatchet and cut me free. The skiff flew loose and rammed into the catch. I was thrown onto the floorboards. A sea broke over us, half-filled the skiff, and pulled her sluggishly away until the next sea lifted us and tossed us back. I grabbed the gunwale of the catch with both hands and hung on. I had her. 
The tug bobbed near. Jordan cupped his hands over his mouth and roared, All yours, you poor son of a bitch! And kept on yelling, but the rest was drowned out in the storm. All mine, and all I had to do was let out anchor line. The catch rolled hard, and the rail went down, and the sea closed over me. But I hung on. She rolled back. On the next rising wave, I scrambled aboard, clutching my painter, cleated it, and then slid and lurched on the moss line deck forward to the Samsung post to ease the anchors out. We were less than ten boat lengths away from the bluff. I knelt down thinking, by God, I do have her, clutched the post and reached for the anchor lines. But there were no lines. There was nothing near the post. Dangling there were short cut ends of the ropes. I stared at them stupidly. Jordan was gone. He had guided the tug out of the shoals to the safety of deep water. There was only one escape. If by miracle I could raise the sails in time, and if by miracle she didn't run aground, I'd sail her out. And if I couldn't, if she was hurled against the bluffs, masts snapping, decks buckling, the sea rushing in, pulling her under, at least she would have died with sails aloft, having tried to sail out to open sea. But the dirt-hardened knots of the mainsail lanyards wouldn't give. I gored them with my marlin spike. The drumming on the cliff was now louder than the waves. The knots opened, the sail was free, five boat lengths. I had memorized the halyards in the cove over the year and now yanked one of them in the damp, dim light watching for a movement in the sail, but nothing budged. Bloody lines found the right one at last, and soaked mainstail began to rise towards the moon, pouring filthy water from its folds, rising to the masthead. I cleated it and was scrambling aft to sheet it tight when a wave broke over us and sent me sliding, banging along the deck. But I tightened the main sheet and the sail filled and the catch healed lurched ahead and I turned the wheel but the bow barely swung. Three boat lengths. We needed more sail. With the tail of the main sheet I lashed down the wheel then back to the mast to raise the jib. But there seemed to be ten times as many lines as before, whipping and arcing in the wind. I found the right halyard and the sail flew up with the bronze hanks screaming on the wire. Two boat lengths. With bleeding fingers, I cleated it, jammed the jib sheet through the block, and with the cliff right there beside me, winched it tight. One boat length. The sails were full and pulling. The catch moved ahead, and I was sure now that we'd made it. Saw the cliff drift slowly by. Then we hit. With that deep, dull thud that breaks a sailor's heart, the catch came down and shuddered on a rock. No boat length. The keel ground. She shuddered but stood still, a statue with full sails, waiting for that last wave to lower her to the grave. I stumbled forward on deck. It was like walking on firm ground. I groped for the last halyard, clawed it loose, and hoisted the staysail. It was small and flew fast, then back to the cockpit. The catch rose and thudded. I flattened all sails, and she heeled hard but stood still. I kept winching and the sheets vibrated and the blocks creaked 
from strain, but I had nothing else left, so I winched some more. Then the wind gusted, and a big wave slammed her, and the bow fell. The stern rose, ready to go under, when suddenly her keel scraped, and she began to slide. Sideways. She slid free, free to drift forward to be shattered against the cliff. The next wave hit her broadside and threw her at the cliff, and the skiff, trapped between them, exploded into splinters. I was watching the water vanish beside the hull when, almost imperceptibly, she heeled for the last time and moved with a feeble desperation along the cliff, sailing away into the waves towards the wide-open, glittering silver sea. One boat length. I clutched the wheel. We sailed. I held the wheel as tenderly as I ever held a woman. The drumming on the cliff faded behind us and the waves now rolled more gently under us, then broke with a complacent hiss along the shore. I kept the rudder still so as not to disturb the flow of water over it, lest we lose what little speed we had and be left again to the mercy of the waves. When we gained more speed, I nudged the wheel and eased us away from the rocks, then let out the sheets and the sails swelled, and we surged through the open sea. The storm eased. We were in its eye. With a suddenness that always surprises, the wind fell and the seas sagged, and spreading like a smile across the bottom of the heavens came the dawn. It came with a deceptive pink light and shepherded the storm-worn moon out of the sky.